Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Andrew Wong, and uh, if some of you don't know me, I've um, been here for about a year and a half now as a director of discipleship, and I have the privilege of overseeing small groups and assimilation of, uh, of, of those small groups and the different discipleship classes, and it's been a joy uh, to serve here, serve the Lord here. Uh, please per- turn into your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming down uh, with a Bible in hand, and you can just raise your hand, and, and, uh, and, and you can uh, borrow that Bible. If you don't have one, uh, this is our gift to you. I'll be reading from uh, the NASB. I didn't bring my ESV up here, so... I'll be reading from a different version. I just don't want you to be caught off guard when I read this passage. Ephesians 1 and verse 15 to 21. Verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints." And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I chose this title, Enlighten Our Hearts, because uh, throughout the scriptures we see prayers. We don't only see facts, and we don't only see promises of God, we see prayers. So there are prayers in the Old Testament, prayers of Jeremiah, Isaiah, David, Samuel, Uh, There's many different people who prayed throughout Scripture. And here we come to the New Testament. And one of the primary people who prayed for the church and also for us uh, is is Paul. And, And he prayed for the church at Ephesus because they were going through challenging times. Many of you maybe have gone through the book of uh, Ephesians and kind of looked through the context. Uh, But let me just share with you a little bit about what's Uh, was going on at the time. The church at Ephesus struggled immensely with secular and uh, political problems. Um, The city was the center of a trade, uh, but uh, it quickly lost that because the harbor was uh, unnavigable. The worship of Artemis and all the images and idols that came uh, with her uh, became the city's means of economic survival. The tourist and pilgrim trade associated with Artemis made many people wealthy in Ephesus. Innkeepers and restaurant owners grew rich 
uh, from the large influx of worshipers who traveled great distances to see the temple of Artemis. Now, Artemis was the patroness of sex. Prostitutes uh, sold their bodies without condemnation in the two-story brothel on Marble Road. Although Artemis was the main attraction, there were all sorts of magic and sorcery at Ephesus. So this was the context, this is the situation in the time of Paul in the city of Ephesus, in which he lived and he, wrote, and he wrote a letter to them. So we come to this verse here, and here is Paul praying for the people. He is praying for the people. And in verse uh, 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The big idea of this sermon and this passage and what Paul wants us to know is that our hearts need to be enlightened with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, well, I know Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? I can say the same thing. I know Jesus, but you can ask me, what do I mean by that? You see, knowledge is not just intellectual assent. It's not just saying that, oh, you know something about someone. The knowledge that we're talking about here according to the Scriptures is a knowledge that is so personal that it affects your soul, it affects your actions, it affects your life to such a degree that you lose everything to follow. The knowledge of Jesus Christ comes at a cost. And that's what Paul prayed. Paul prayed that our hearts would be enlightened with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, we may not have uh, temples. Um, we may not have, uh, you know, the, the type of worship that that. that belonged in those days, but we do have uh, gods in our country and in our city. Uh, the god of indifference and apathy has become our shrine. We've become indifferent to spiritual things. We've become indifferent to morality. We have become indifferent to, indifferent to our own consciences. Instead, our pursuit has been purely comfort convenience, and personal happiness. We have turned to gadgets and digital toys to fulfill our desires for connectedness and community. We have turned to sales and good deals on Amazon to fulfill our greed and materialistic and consumeristic tendencies. We have turned to money as a source of survival of of the survival of happiness, security, and stability. And we all struggle with the God of pride. If someone tells us that we aren't who we think we are, we want all, we have all reasons and justify all ways to tell them that they're wrong. The God of pride, the God of selfishness, the God of greed. These are our gods today. So we, though we do not have Artemis, we do have many gods in our society. 
And the question today is for you and for me is, what are you most passionate about? What are you truly seeking? You see, the Bible tells us that we must seek the Lord. We must passionately seek Him. We are called to seek the Lord and the knowledge of Christ, who is our life. What are you opening your hearts to on a daily basis? What are you opening your minds to daily? Our hearts need to be enlightened with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. A couple of passages in the New Testament that kind of coincide with this would be Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 to 10 says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Spiritual wisdom. You see, this is not talking about some sort of, you know, knowledge that you obtain just by saying that you know something about God. This is talking about a spirit-given wisdom from God to you so that you can know Him. It's a spiritual wisdom. That's why in this text it talks about a spirit of wisdom. It's not a mystical thing. It's not something that you can conjure up yourself. It comes from God by the power of His Spirit in your life to reveal to you that which is wise and true. And then another passage in 1 Corinthians speaks about this. It says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept these things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So it's important to know that Paul here is not talking, the spirit of wisdom is not talking about a worldly wisdom. It's talking about a wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit to the individual. Paul prays that we would be enlightened by the power of God's Spirit so that we would know Jesus Christ. And this is his prayer. And I'm hoping this would be our prayer in 2020 as we think about this new year. It ain't about just thinking about or knowing Jesus as a subject. But, but it's knowing Christ as the very object of our faith. The very, the very object of our, of our affections and our love and our attention. That is what Paul is saying here. In this text, our hearts need to be enlightened with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul prayed this, and, and there's three things that he says, in, or three ways that he prays uh, in, this, uh, in this passage. And I'm going to break it down for you. The first is this. Paul prayed for the people at Ephesus and for us. He prayed that our hearts will be enlightened with hope in Christ. 
with hope in Christ. Hope is a very interesting word, isn't it? Our, our church is called Hope Church. And like Pastor Ted said uh, uh, during our Christmas Eve service, there's different types of hope, right? I mean, you can hope for something really small or you can hope for something really big and it could be very desperate. But ultimately, in this context, hope has a name. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Our hope is in Christ. But what about Jesus are we truly hoping in? You might ask that question, what about Jesus are we hoping in? Let's, let's look at the text here. In verse 18... The first part of that, verse 18a, it says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the, the hope to which he has called you. First and foremost, we need to know that hope doesn't just exist. It comes in the form of a calling. And if any of you know the calling of God because you've been saved, because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have hope. It's because of the calling that it comes preceding that hope. If, if, you, if you don't know Jesus this morning and you, I'm sorry to say, your hope is in something else that won't last. It, it might last for a little while, but ultimately the very deep-seated need for us is to know the hope that lasts forever. The hope that we have in Christ. He called us. And now let's look at verse 4. Chapter 1 verse 4 says this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. God called us first. God showered his grace. God showed his mercy. God loved us first. We did not love him first. He loved us first. That's why he chose us. He gave us the salvation. And not only did he give us the salvation so that we would be, well, we would be happy, right? The text does not say happy. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. God is more concerned with your holiness and your sanctification than he is with your happiness. God is not so much uh, concerned about how happy he, you know, your life is, which by the way, it's a fraud. If you think that being a Christian makes you more happy, it's a, it's a lie from the devil. Being a Christian makes you desire the things of God in ways you never did before so that you can be joyful in Him, so that you can have true satisfaction and true lasting joy, not a happiness that comes and goes based on circumstances or even what you know. It is such a, it is such a different thing. Here in this text, he's telling us that God chose us, that God called us, to holy living. He called us to be blameless. I was talking to somebody in the uh, former, uh, in, the, in the previous um, uh, service, 
And she said to me, she's like, how, how is it that being blameless, like we, we can't be blameless. How can that be a goal? And it's true, isn't it? The word here, blameless, in the original text means without fault. It means sinless. It means without blemish. It's the type of uh, uh, Old Testament uh, context when uh, they were making sacrifices and they were offering to the Lord and they needed to offer unblemished animals. And so it, it needed to be perfect. But in the New Testament here, we do not sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins so that he could live the life that we could not live so those who trust and put their faith in him could have this security. And the security is that you can stand before God one day holy and blameless, not because of your own merit, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ's done on your behalf. The mechanism of that true salvation is faith and trust and a repentance that turns to Jesus. And so often we forget that holiness is our calling. He, he has called us not just one day when you die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first, to be in front of him to be holy and blameless because of what Christ has done for you. He doesn't just call us to that. He calls us right now, here, in this place, in 2020, to live a holy life, blameless. God calls us to a holy life, a blameless life. I just want to turn here, uh, and it's not on the slide, but it's Jude, Jude 24. It says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Don't you want to practice that now? Knowing that one day that you stand before a holy God, knowing that your faults and your sins far outweigh your good works, and knowing that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, and that his holiness and his blamelessness has been imputed upon you, his righteousness. But don't you want to live that way now? Don't you want to try? Don't you want to, don't you want to pursue the calling that God has called you to? Like, I, I, I wake up. In the morning, and I think to myself sometimes, if there weren't people around me, if, if there weren't other Christians around me, would I be sensitive, and to keep me accountable, would I be sensitive to the sins of my own heart and my own life? I want to be blameless before God. I know I can't be perfect, but I want to live a different life. I want to change. I want to move forward. I don't want to go backward. I don't want to stay stagnant. I don't want to get tripped up. I want to be blameless because we have a blameless slavery. And because of who he is, we have joy to live that way. The eyes of your heart. 
In verse 4, it says this, Even as he chose us before, in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and, holy and blameless before him. Verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is the foundation of holy and blameless. The foundation is the very fact that he has redeemed us through his blood. This blood is not a blood that is tainted with sin. All of our blood, if we drain it right now, it's tainted with sin because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this blood, the blood that Jesus shed, is a, is a pure blood. And he redeemed us. He redeemed us. I pray also that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. There's only one time that this has been written. Uh, if you can go back on the slide to verse 18a, please. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. It's only written one time in the New Testament. And the reason why that is is because if you, if you notice what happened to, uh, to Paul in Acts chapter 9, it was something pretty, pretty significant. He was on his way to Damascus, and all of a sudden, and he was persecuting Christians. His name was Saul before. He was persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, having them killed, everything. And he, on his way, he was just on his way to Damascus, and a great light came from heaven, blinded him, and a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Three days and three nights, he wasn't sleeping, nor was he eating, nor was he drinking. It was, it was, it was brutal is because he was praying. Interesting. Why would he pray? I thought he was persecuting Jesus. And then all of a sudden Ananias sees a vision, and then Ananias sees a vision and, and, and from the Lord, and the Lord tells him, you must go to Saul, you must go to this man, and you must help him. You must be with him. It's because Saul, who was named, later named Paul, had the eyes of his heart opened, even though he was physically blind. That's why he used these words, because he experienced it himself. The transformation that came from trusting in Jesus Christ was because the eyes of his heart, even though he was physically blind, the eyes of his heart were open. He began to truly see and know Jesus for who he was. So our hearts, that's what Paul's prayed, is that our hearts will be enlightened with the hope that we have in Christ. This hope is the calling that we have. The calling of salvation so that we would be happy. No, that we would be holy and blameless because of his redemption. Now, brothers and sisters, I say the word holy and blameless not as something... Um, not as some information to give you, or not just so that you can go home and just read this and have information. This is incredibly powerful. Jesus Christ was set apart. Jesus Christ lived a holy life. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ lived a blameless life. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be blameless. He wants us to live that way. I know we can't 
fully until one day when we have perfected bodies in heaven. But we can't, but we will try. We will try by the power of his spirit. It's important to know that it is, it, it's his salvation that grants us the ability to do this. It's his calling that grants us the ability to live holy lives. And the second is this. Not only did Paul pray that our hearts would be enlightened with the hope in Christ, but Paul prays also that our hearts will be enlightened to the true riches in Christ. True riches in Christ. We have to know something about the word enlightened here. Enlightened is, is, is a word that has to do with um, uh, revealing something. Like you, 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 you didn't really know it before that existed before, but when someone uh, uh, shines a flashlight on it, 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 you can see it. It's enlightened. So Paul prayed that we would be enlightened to the riches we have in Christ Jesus. Now what are these riches? In 18, chapter 18, Sorry, verse 18b, it says this. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wants us to know that there are riches in Christ. There are riches in his glorious inheritance. Now, what are these? What is this glorious inheritance? In verse 13, it says here, just a little bit further, a little bit behind, it says this. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We'll keep that verse right up. We'll keep that passage up on the screen. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, how do we know that we know that we will be in heaven? It's because, number one, that we know that we belong to Christ as we put our faith in him and not in ourselves. That we put our faith in his work on the cross. And because of that, he promises the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to seal us, and to be the guarantee. And many of you have uh, probably bought a home or are planning to buy a home or saving up to buy a home. And the first thing you need to know is not uh, necessarily the mortgage rates or the interest rates, first thing you need to know is how much do you have as a down payment because in today's day, it's hard to buy a home without a down payment, right? So the larger amount you have, the more you are able to, uh, uh, to, to put down, the, 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 more, uh, this, the, the easier it is to get the home because they want to know how much you're willing to put down. Now, the Bible says here, the word guarantee here is really in essence, the, um, um, it's a pledge of our inheritance. It's a down payment. The Holy Spirit dwells within us so that we know for sure that our inheritance is secure. God's Spirit living in you is not just something that happens here on earth before you go to heaven. It is something that happens so that you can be sure that you know that you know that you are going to heaven. 
that you have a relationship with God and that God works in your life. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I don't know. Well, then well, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit and ask the question, have you truly given your life to Jesus? Because that is the mechanism by which the Holy Spirit comes into your life is through faith in Christ do you have new life and life forever. And the Holy Spirit convicts me. There are times when I recognize and realize things way after, weeks after. And then, you know, I'm driving down and, and, and I'm just thinking like, oh, wait, did I, did, I, did I say this to this person a while back? And it wasn't, it wasn't in, 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 out of a good heart. And I'm like, well, who reminded me of that? It wasn't my wife. It wasn't anyone else. Sometimes I rely on her for that. But I mean, you know, like the things like this, well, you know that God is working in your life because it doesn't take a person to remind you of that. It takes God's Spirit in you to remind you of those things. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, notice what it also says until we acquire possession of it. Another translation says this in verse 14. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. The word here, redemption, is mentioned in chapter 7, or sorry, verse 7, as well as in verse 14. But I like how the NASB translates it, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. God's own possession. Jesus did not only die for your sins. Jesus did not only die for your sin. He'd only, he didn't only pay the penalty for your sin. He did much more. Just imagine, I'll just give you a hypothetical situation here. Just imagine if I had a friend who uh, committed an atrocious act. A horrible, horrible thing. And he was thrown into prison. And, uh, you know... And it was very, like, I mean, it's, it's so bad. He's stuck in prison, and I'm out here, and I want him to come out. So I'm going to do whatever it takes, because I love him so much. I care for him so much, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get him out. So I give an enormous amount of money. I just give everything that I have so that he could come out. Now, just imagine if he comes out, and he's, he's you know, free, and his chains are free, and he's walking, and he comes up, and he gives me a hug, and he says, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for saving me, for, 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 for setting me free. And I give him a hug and I say, I, I love you, I care for you, I'm so glad that you're free. And I shake his hand and then I say, I'll see you soon, goodbye. He goes over to his own home. I go back to my own home. It doesn't make sense. I just gave everything for my friend and he's not with me. You see, the gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sin and he paid the penalty for our sin. Not that he just, he, he did those things. He justified us before a holy God. He was the one who, who gave us new life because of his sacrifice. He paid the penalty which we deserve on the cross. That payment is paid in full. Absolutely, that's true. But what he also did was he redeemed us. He redeemed you. He bought you. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, 
You're sitting right here. He bought you. He purchased you with his precious blood so that you would be with him. So that you would be with him for eternity. So that you would, this, this is the amazing thing, is that an inheritance is not, it's not, it's not a, um, oh, you know, I, I, I you know, the, the gold paths and, and the homes and every beautiful thing that you can imagine in heaven is a wonderful thing. But the, but the most important thing, the thing that we were saved for is, is, is to be with him, is to be in his presence, is to be his possession. We belong to him. We can go home to him. That is the beauty of the cross and redemption. You can only belong to Christ if you put your faith and trust in him. And you can only have this inheritance in heaven is if you truly have this relationship with him. Redemption. The riches of Christ is our inheritance. We have in him. We have him. We are now sealed with the Holy Spirit, the pledge of our inheritance. God has given us the Holy Spirit so that one day when we, when we see him face to face, we will know that we belong to him. And the final, um, the final point is this, is that our hearts need to be enlightened with the power of Christ. The power of Christ. Verse 19 says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul has a really funny way of like tagging everything along. Like if you read, read uh, chapter one of each of his letters, he just keeps going, going, run on sentences and everything. And this is one of them. This is one of those long, 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 comma, comma, this, comma, that. But he's basically describing the power. The power, first of all, that comes from the work of his great might. Work of the Father that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is that power. If you want to get into details, it's the power that brought Christ to this earth. It's the power that allowed him to do the miracles. It's the power that allowed him to go to the cross and go to it with a full willingness that he carried the sins of those who believe. It's that power. It's that power. And it's the power of the resurrection that he would be three days in the grave and that he would rise again. That's the power that we have in Christ. There is no other power in this world that can compare to what we have in Christ. There is nothing. And that's why it says there. It says there in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? This is not a power 
that is just observed. This is a power to be received and to know and to understand. And that is why Paul prays that our hearts would be enlightened to the power of Christ. That we would know that immeasurable greatness of His power towards you, towards me. That greatness, that power is, 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 is immeasurable. It's the power that shows us how to live a righteous life. It's, whenever we speak of baptism, I, I think people are afraid not just of getting into the water and coming out, but they're afraid of what happens when they leave the church after they get baptized and they, and they feel like they can't live up to what, uh, what, they, what they proclaimed. That they died to Christ, buried in the water, and now raised with Christ. And now they're walking through the door and they're thinking to themselves, how come I still sin? How come I can't overcome this addiction? How come this is still happening to me again? Why is it that the power of sin and the power of the devil and the power of this world and the power of the God of this age is constantly spinning me around? And I can't get out, even though I've been baptized and proclaim him as Lord and Savior. You see, this is the truth. The truth is that we need to receive and know with full assurance that it is Jesus Christ and his resurrection that has provided, past tense, for you in the present tense, the power to overcome all things. He's provided all that you need so that you in your present situation and in the future can overcome the things that entangle you. It's the power uh, to live a holy and righteous life. I don't have this on the screen, but you can turn in your Bibles back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 to, um, 9 to 10. Paul prays, it's actually a, a parallel passage to the Ephesians passage, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is the Lord who died and rose again. This is the Lord who expressed his power over all things. That you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That you would live humbly. That you would give your life to the purposes of God. Let's keep reading. To please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, God's purpose and will for your life after you become a Christian is, is not your happiness per se, but it really is your holiness. It is the pursuit of Him. It is the pursuit of Jesus Christ. And He gives us that power to live that life. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, it's not on your screen, on the screen, but it's here in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8 to 10. Many of you know this verse very well, but verse 10 is what I want to focus in on. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his 
workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, because who was the one who died and rose again for our sin? He was the one who did that. So to anyone who has faith and trust in him, we, anyone who has faith and trust in him, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the power that exists for us. It's the power of the resurrection. It's the power of his great might. So next time you face something, do not think that the struggle is too much. Do not. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because God has provided everything for us so that we can live godly lives. God has provided everything for us in Christ. He's allowed for his son to die and to be risen from the dead. He has given us the freedom now to truly trust in him and his resurrection power. So there is no no evil. There is no atrocity. There is nothing that surrounds you that is too powerful or too authoritative for you. Because you have Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's nothing. And by the way, let's remind ourselves of this daily. Because it's not just the one, one time I remind myself of the resurrection and I'm good for the rest of my life. No, remind ourselves of the power of the resurrection so that you can walk faithfully with God each day. That's my prayer, and that's Paul's prayer. That should be our prayer. Finally, in a conclusion, I believe God doesn't need anything. God has no needs. He created everything. He exists outside of space and time. He doesn't need us. He created us so that we could worship him. But what he desires, God has wants. And his wants are in his word. And if you believe in who he is, you will follow his wants. And one of the greatest wants that he has in this text is this. He wants your attention. He wants your attention in 2020. He wants your attention in 2021. He wants your attention. He wants to have your attention. He wants you to to know him. Do you have his attention? And does he have your attention? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you, Lord, for your word and just the fact that we, 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 we are here not because of anything we've done or the knowledge that we have. It is all because of your truth and all because of your actions and all because of your glorious power. 
Lord, many of us have experienced this power in our lives. We pray, O oh God, that this would be true every day, that we would know you, that we would have a, a clear understanding of your calling, that we would understand also the, the, the freedom that we have to live this life under your authority and your power through the resurrection power. I pray that 2020 would be a, a beautiful year, not without uh, struggle, not without trial, for they will come, but with the glorious victory that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name.